Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. For years now, there have been more women than men in journalism schools across North America, and they have been outperforming men in journalism schools across North America, and yet women remain vastly underrepresented at the highest levels of newspaper leadership. Why do so many female journalists leave the industry, and why do so few reach the top? That is the question asked by Vivian Smith in her book, Outsiders Still, Why Women Journalists Love and Leave Their Newspaper Careers. Smith is a former journalist who spent 14 years at the Globe and Mail as a reporter, an editor, and a manager. She herself has left the newspaper business. She is currently an instructor at the University of Victoria. And for her book, she interviewed 24 female newspaper journalists throughout Canada. They told her on the record what it's like for them. And Vivian Smith will tell me about it in just a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Matthew McGowan, Kaleem, Ian Medill, Ted C. McCullough, Chris Dobson, Jeff Hayward, Dan Dickinson, Brett Payton, and Patrick Schmidt. 
Patrick, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I believe that independent journalism provides essential perspective to the public at large. And their t-shirts are nice. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of CanadaLand is also brought to you by our initial sponsor, our first sponsor ever, FreshBooks. So FreshBooks has used a variety of different slogans, mottos throughout the years, cloud accounting, painless billing. Currently, it's save time billing, get paid faster. And from the perspective of somebody who writes news headlines, I like that because it's it's really pithy, it's quick, it's elegant, and it's descriptive. Save time billing, get paid faster. That's why I use FreshBooks as a freelancer now, as somebody who's running a small business. It does save me time. I still have this resistance to doing my books, to doing my invoicing, where I'm like, ah, this is a drag. It's not what I want to be doing, so I put it off. But that is sort of like the the vestigial tale of years of freelancing uh, using Microsoft Word and other things for my invoicing, because I put it off, I put it off, and then I open up the FreshBooks mobile app and enter in my expenses or do my billing, whatever, and I, I'm just done five or ten minutes later. So it, it, there's just no question that it saves me quite a bit of time every week. And it has the effect of getting me paid faster, both because the invoices look very professional, which for some reason has some kind of impact on when people pay you, Uh, also because it allows people to pay you directly online using a credit card or PayPal. So I have noticed that I get my money from clients quicker than I used to. So those are two very good reasons, I think, to check out FreshBooks. And if you go to FreshBooks.com, you can try it free for a month when you tell them that you heard about them from Canada Land. You will also be helping the show by doing that. FreshBooks.com. Save time billing. Get paid faster. Works for me. So 
Vivian, in your book, you write about this experience of being eight months pregnant and having your editor sort of jokingly say, you're still here? Yeah, that was the publisher, actually. I'm sorry, the publisher. Um, okay. And you write that you didn't know it at the time, but that was the beginning of the end of your career in newspapers. Yeah. Why would having a kid be the beginning of the end for your newspaper career? Well, I think that that's a great question to start with because it's so revealing of how gendered this whole thing is. You know, I can't blame you for being a guy at all, but this is the sort of most basic and important question that we can talk about. So having a kid is a defining moment for most women in most workplaces, uh, women who suddenly realize, okay, they've been ticking along in their careers, they get pregnant, and then they're gone for now a year. For when I was having my kids, it was, I think I was 16 or 17 weeks, something like that. And you are derailed. You suddenly have this other interest in your life, and it is understood, sort of, it's, a, it's bigger than newspapers, it's societal, that this is your responsibility and your reproduction should not get in the way of the corporate purposes, whatever they may be. So you have to find ways to negotiate that constantly if you want to stay, if you want to not just survive but thrive. And it becomes more and more difficult for most women as time goes on. I often think of my children listening to this sort of thing and think, oh, geez, we, uh, we're sorry. But they're the next generation. They're wonderful. You wouldn't change it for anything. But what you would change is how reproduction defines women's careers in ways that it doesn't define men's. You know, I've got small children, and to imagine, even from my point of view, and I don't do a fraction of the childcare that my wife does, right. 16 weeks into our uh, either of our kids' lives, yeah. returning to work and being expected to even, like, be conscious, Yes, I wouldn't have been able to perform anywhere near what I was capable of before that. No, I think that's right. And I think that that is, you know, if you imagine that repeated in even the most, you know, liberated and egalitarian families, which I'm sure yours is and mine is, but you also find yourself, and again, these are, these are cultural things that we bring on ourselves in many ways. You think as the female of the, uh, of the equation, if that's your arrangement, the person who's doing the childcare, that you really should take on as much as you can and do as much of that midnight feeding and whatever else as you can so that the partner can be functioning in his work or hers, if that's the case maybe. But generally speaking, we're talking about him. And so the guy then gets a pass on a lot of the childcare that involves no sleep. And that is a, an agreement so that people can... You know, people can go and do their jobs and cover stories. If they're journalists, cover stories and be at the office and stay late and get that extra interview and take the call when the mayor or the head of CEO calls at 9 o'clock at night. So, yeah, it completely gets reinforced. But now you're enlightened and you know you know much better and you will you will work to reverse this, right? Yeah, I mean, I want for myself and I have the luxury of being, you know, I can kind of make my own hours. I don't think I would have yeah. been able to last, yeah. you know, and that is, again, from the point of view of, of the guy who's doing less of that labor than, than my wife. Right. What you describe is so common in so many different workplaces. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people in the newspaper business would say, to the accusation of sexism, there would be a lot of people who would resist the idea that they are sexist themselves. But this is, this is still an environment that 
values, staying really late and just being a team player to at whatever cost, whatever it happens, you've got to get the story or you've got to make deadline. And I think that's considered a plus that's egalitarian and that's like that's genderless, except it does impact one gender more than the other. Absolutely. People going into these professions, and more and more women do, obviously, tend to reproduce those cultures and also try to resist them because they're not good for men or women. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point as well, that everybody kind of buys into that value system and, 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 you know, to ask who is it actually serving. Right. You're describing like a traditional newspaper print organization where everybody is advocating for their own story. There's only one front page. There's only one above the fold and news breaks when it breaks and you're subservient to outside forces like war or what politicians are saying. And that's how these these situations get so politicized that if you are there 3 a.m. to catch the bit of information or to work your source, that's valued. And also if you're kind of like working your relationship in the editorial power structure, then that can help you as well. Sure. That does not really suit a flex arrangement if you're running back and forth from daycare. That's right. My idea is that if you look at that as you have described it and you say, well, it works great for me because I'm the editor-in-chief and it works great for the people around me who want to be editor-in-chief, but what if it's not working great, in fact, for, say, a third of your newsroom, which is going to be women, or the guys whose wives are having kids and who are probably also professional. And what benefit does that accrue to the reader? What benefit does that accrue to democracy? What benefit does that accrue to our understanding of the world? I think that's the pivotal question, because if I can think right offhand of some people who've been in those very powerful positions, Mm -hmm. I know how they think about this. They don't think of it as a gendered thing. They say, look, I work 24 hours a day. I'm constantly on call. I'm on my fourth marriage. I'm a recovering alcoholic. And that's just how news is done. And I don't care if you're a man or a woman, but if you can hack it, then you can be in my inner circle. And you can think that that's an egalitarian and meritocracy kind of a situation, but what you're not considering is it's not just about checking off, oh, we've got 50% female representation. It's what does it give to your organization and to your readers and to the product that you point out. You bring up some interesting stuff about the way that the sections of the newspaper themselves are gendered. Right. And there's a pecking order amongst those sections that so-called hard news, politics, and war are front page fodder, whereas the sections that tend to be edited by women, where women seem to be able to rise to the top, are considered like women's sections, the life section, the art section, food, stuff like that is considered, you know, I've got a boy and a girl. It's like the pink aisle at the toy store and the blue aisle. It couldn't be more stark, you know? Yes, it is. Uh, And I'm also the parent of a now a man and a woman. But those are things that really do become, you really do see how the personal is the political when you start uh, looking at how gendered we are from the get-go. What you're talking about in newspapers, how that manifests itself is the pink aisle is the lifestyle section and what we call soft news and entertainment. And the blue aisle is everything else. And it's a kind of, if you can think of it in terms of Public life and private life, those are still the invisible line for how newspapers cover news. The way you went about uh, researching your book was through narrative analysis, which is essentially storytelling. So you spoke to over over 24 women who uh, are at various stages of their career 
in Canadian newspapers. I think it's an interesting concept because it's one thing to say that Canadian newspapers are sexist, but it's another thing to prove it. And do you feel that you proved it? I don't think it's for me to prove anything, and science will tell you that we suggest and indicate and so forth. I think that the stories that these women tell show how gendered newsrooms are and have been, and because they come from across the country and across different kinds of newsrooms, and I even made sure to go to newsrooms that were owned by different companies, so no one could say, oh, gee, you know, that's just that corporation, that's just that company. I didn't go and say, hey, so tell me how sexist your newsroom is. I mean, we just talked about their lives. And certainly it was my analysis that took the facts of their lives and made out of it what I believe to be signs of gendered workplace experience. And I'm obviously not the first one to do this. There's lots and lots of literature out there on what newspapers reproduce as gendered workplaces. For example, looking at content analysis. So you look at, well, what is the newspaper writing about? How many sources are women? How many bylines are female? And so forth. So in other words, outward manifestations of women's effect, impact, and participation in newsrooms. What I decided to do was to say, okay, so we see how few women reach the top. I have those statistics. Uh, We see how few women are sources. I have those statistics. And what I wanted was real stories from real people who produce the news who are women and to see what that experience is like for them and how might their presence in the newsroom be changing it or changing them. One of the big goals of any kind of research is to create a conversation or join a conversation. And what I feel like is that the conversation that I've been writing about has been going on for a long, long time for women in sort of potluck suppers and, you know, we had our women's group at the Globe and there are other kinds of women in, you know, media babes and that sort of thing. But when it comes to breaking out this story into the wider newsroom, it just is too fraught somehow or men don't want to take it up because Mm -hmm. they feel, uh, oh, we're going to be blamed. You know, we're nice guys and they are, they're great guys. Everybody is reproducing this culture. Just a few weeks ago, a friend here at... um, in Victoria, had a, um, a little evening for me in the book and to sell some books and talk about the issue. And, and I said, I, I hope, you know, please make sure that men and women um, are both invited. And um, she did that, but no men came. And I heard afterwards that, well, there were three men. They were boyfriends of women who came, not, not journalists. Uh, and afterwards, I heard one woman say, well, you know, we asked the guys and they said, oh, they'll just blame us. You know, there's a very vulnerable kind of aspect to this, too, for men in newsrooms. They tend, I think, still to see power as a zero-sum game, and if they let women in, they're going to lose some. And it's just not the case. It's, you know, power is, there's no finite amount of it. It's infinite. We can all use it. I think that probably to a person, if you went and asked the male editors of the upper echelons of Canada's newspapers, do you think sexism is a problem? in the media, mm-hmm. I think they probably would agree. But nobody wants to say, well, what about your own institution? And even if they are in a situation where every senior editor or every masthead editor is a man, few of them would consider themselves to be sexist. And the fear of a personal indictment, one that actually could cost you power, is really acute. Yeah, again, yeah, we, we go back to this sort of old boys club. I talked to some women, you know, who 
were in upper echelons who talked about reproducing the male culture in editorial meetings. And I've done the same thing, you know, where you laugh at the same jokes and roll your eyes and make suggestions based on what you think they will like, not on what you think might be important. You know, women struggle all the time, and so do men, against this stuff. Women and men reproduce this culture, and they resist it. But it's just sometimes easier to say, you know what? I'm exhausted. I'm going home. I've got another shift waiting for me. I'm not going to bother. This is my 12-inch story for the day. Here you go. <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, you, you kind of present two options there, and that's a binary that some people would take issue with, and that's why it's so thorny to talk about this. And yet, you've had 24 extensive on-the-record uh, conversations or a series of conversations. Yeah, weren't they wonderful to do that for me, to name names and give me their names and everything? It's just amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. But I want to talk about that as well. It's just interesting that you know these trends do emerge, these patterns emerge, and it's difficult to talk about because you get into issues of, well— if you're going to say that the women who do rise to the top often seem to accept and reproduce the culture, the patriarchal culture, the sexist culture, laugh at the right jokes, mm-hmm. and act like the guys who were there before they showed up, then you get into this question of, well, what are you saying a woman should act like? You can either just sort of go home and abandon your career or become a freelancer or just leave entirely, or you can go act like the boys. And a lot of people would say, well, that's, that's not the decision. And yet, you talk to people again and again, and that seems to be the fork in the road that a lot of people come up against. Mm-hmm. There's also the idea that that which is gendered, that which is racialized, that which is sexualized, can give you power, too, can make you, um, to use the dreaded empowered word. So you can use that to say, hey, guys, this is maybe not how we should be covering this story. You know, maybe we should be talking about... Uh, you know, the impact of poverty or something in a different way. And it doesn't always have to be kind of the usual, you know, women write about poverty in schools and all that. And those are really important things. But well, maybe we should be looking at how we cover politics and how we cover business and how we cover men's professional sports in different ways. Those are all big sections of newspapers. Yeah, especially when you consider that all of these so-called, you know, hard news, important news stories are written with absolutely like a middle-aged guy in mind, and maybe the economic fortunes of this business would improve if you were reaching for a bit more of an expansive, diverse, and, you know, (laughs) women and men and all, all sorts of Canadians. So you have these 24 women who describe all manner of inappropriate and even sexist behavior ranging from small things that are probably subconscious to overt sexual harassment or stealing someone's byline, taking their name off of an article. There's, there, and the, there are editors, men with powerful positions, who have done these things, and they are all granted the benefit of namelessness. They're not called out. Yeah. I couldn't help wonder after my own recent experience where, you know, and I don't mean to compare the quick website post that I wrote with this, uh, you know, book you wrote, which was based on a scholarly research that you did. But I just wonder if that's the decision. Do you have the decision between having the women's names and not the men or anonymous women, and then you can actually call out men. It's not so much about, you know, j'accuse, yeah. you are a sexist pig, as much as, hey, you five guys, you have an incredible amount of power in your organization. Why isn't there a woman amongst you? And are you aware that many women in your organization yeah. are not happy with the state of affairs? And, and you know, we're, we're speaking to you five specifically. I don't want to focus on men. I want to talk about and to these women and just record and understand and analyze their experiences. Like, I can accept 
that while I would hate to be called a sexist in in certain contexts of having treated somebody preferentially or, you know, made life really horrible for somebody or been abusive to somebody as, you know, and a sexist in that context, I can also accept that, like, I have this little nascent media organization and there's three people who host shows and they're all guys. Mm -hmm. And I can accept that that is, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I can accept that as something that I need to think about as opposed to something that is an indictment that I'm going to be shamed and need to somehow excuse myself. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make because, all of this requires us all to take a deep breath and a step back and say, okay, here's my privilege. You know, I am privileged to be Jesse Brown, to have this program and to have this platform and to have these skills. So Vivian Smith, same thing. How did we get there? How is it that we are so, as my older participants would say, just lucky to be part of this business? And it's the luck of being, you know, I can't speak for you, but, you know, middle class and basically, you know, having parents who helped me through school and said you can do what you want. And Definitely, yeah. all of these and being white, all these privileges kind of build up. But it's really hard to step back and say, whoa, you, you know, yes, I see now where I, I, I didn't do the work I needed to do to understand that privilege and to maybe make room for someone else's. And to get back to your uh, your earlier point about power, I think it comes out of a fear that if you recognize that maybe some of your power was not something that you earned, that it'll be taken away from you. Yes, exactly. Any kind of rearranging of the editorial hierarchy is really, really unsettling to people. For people who demand, you know, who, who write about change every day, <laughs> journalists really hate it. So part of what becomes a manager's modus operandi is to say, well, you know, the less disruption, the better. We'll just, we'll just continue on as we have. You know, it upsets morale when people don't know why this person's coming in. We know why, why have we hired this new person? And there's all these questions about, oh, well, you know, they needed a woman, you know, which is terrible and it's undermining and it's unfair. You don't have to fire everybody and start over, but if you can recognize your own privilege, that's a big first step. And if you can say, okay, well, this is how we're going to approach this. And even change how people who you do have in your newsroom report stories. It's incremental. And, and the big argument right now is I can't hire anybody, right? All everybody ever said to me was I cannot hire anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to lay people off. So how am I going to hire more women? Speaking of, speaking of layoffs, um, you, uh, you, know, you interview these 24 women, arguably a high percentage of them, I think five of them were, were and this is a recent book, had left the business. Yeah. Five or six, yeah. One uh, had already left. She was already um, teaching at Dalhousie. One of them left because she was uh, laid off, and I didn't include her because that wasn't voluntary. And she went back into the business, too, Uh in Winnipeg. So those who left, why did they leave? A few reasons. Um, I guess if I can generalize to some degree, they got tired of fighting the same battles and having the same communication problems. And seeing newspapers not as places where they could do what they wanted to do anymore. These women generally had sort of had it. They still had a lot left in them as journalists and as people who can contribute and um, wanted to do something that they felt they couldn't do in the newspaper business anymore. And you never really finished your uh, original narrative uh, at the beginning of our conversation about yourself. Why ultimately did you leave? Well... I think it was a combination of, you know, I feel like I'm the composite character in some ways in the book that um, I was tired, I was stressed, I 
felt though that I couldn't probably succeed um, and be who I was. We had an opportunity to come to Victoria, which I thought would be for about five years while my husband was the um, bureau chief here. And um, I had hoped to be able to work part-time while he was doing that for the Globe, and then we would return and resume our, our careers there. But they didn't want that, and it was at the time when there was a buyout going on. So I think, you know, my own view, and you would have to find out from the people who, who made these decisions what actually transpired. Maybe I'm the, maybe I'm the worst journalist that ever was. Uh, but uh, they were, I'm sure, looking for people who were highly paid at the time. I had a, um, not a you know, I had the regular union wage plus uh, merit pay and had been an editor. So I was uh, well paid as a reporter. I'd gone back to reporting. I left management, and um, in the end, I took a buy, took the buyout, and we moved out here, and we actually never came back. We stayed out here. We loved it. We we're sailors, and I started freelancing and teaching. And my husband worked for the Globe for about five years, and then uh, the Vancouver Sun asked him to work there, so he switched over and did the same job. So it was um, that's sort of how it happened for us. When you've got buyouts, I'm wondering if you look closely at it, how many of the men who took buyouts were nearing the end of their careers and how many women saw it as a way out after having kids uh, when they were not? You know, that's a very good question. Uh, it would be really interesting to go and look at people's reasons for taking buyouts and the age they are at which they take them. And you could also do a very interesting project on what do the men do afterwards. And, for example, if you looked at the round of buyouts you know, here's a good project for you, Jesse. All right. Take not the most recent round of buyouts at the Globe, but the one two years ago now. You know, just take a look at what they're doing now. Uh, would you find that because of the beats that the men had, they were able to leverage those, the, those beat experiences in, into consulting jobs? Did the women do the same? In other words, is there any kind of way to do a gender breakdown or a gender analysis of what they're doing now? It would be interesting to find out and to see, you know, in this, and these are elite journalists too, right? This is yeah. the globe. That might reproduce itself in other newspapers across the country. It might not. Yeah, those are two interesting data points. What were the age and circumstance of the departures with the buyouts? And then where are those people now? I think that is worth looking into. You might find that uh, having a senior beat in a, in a newspaper that involved being the editor-in-chief being, uh, that's not a beat, but I mean, those, the, the status positions of editor-in-chief, managing editor, might translate into other jobs of prestige and salary in the business, as would senior beats, like if you were on the legal beat or if you were on a political beat. So you have all those connections who were sources, and you can probably leverage those into a pretty good consultant mm -hmm. job. I'm just guessing. I'm just blue-skying here. But if you don't have those relationships based on who you were as a journalist, you might not be able to do that kind of work. We're concluding with a story meeting. I can think of no better way. Excellent. You go after that one, and I absolutely want to know <laughs> what you find. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. That is your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. 
You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. The website is canadalandshow.com. The crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. There is an election coming up. If you haven't been listening to Commons, it's pretty fantastic. You should start doing so. Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. I make this show with Katie Jensen. If you like this show, please support it.